and welcome to Mark Bites, episode 102. I'm Elaine Giles and I'm here with my co-host Mike Thomas. In this episode, Boxing Clever, Monkey Business with Minster and some rather alarming undulations. But first of all, we have got to say hello to Master Hobden, who could well be our most youthful listener. That's genuine age, of course, not mental age. Dad Adam assured us that the young gentleman is a fan of Mac Blight's Siri. There's no accounting for taste, I guess. I think the young man has exceptional taste. So do I. You would. Good to hear from you anyway, and I hope you enjoy the increased frequency of shows. Talking of which, two shows in two weeks nearly proved to be too much for Minster. But he did completely surpass himself. I've said it before, but this time... He really has. He found a video that reminded him of the old Razzle Dazzle. Well, that sort of video. No, no, an almost safe for work video. Having said that, there was a monkey in it. No, seriously, if you recall our adventure with Fish and Tips in show 71, the old Razzle Dazzle, then you have just got to see this video. It's only 30 seconds, so there's no excuse. Link will be in the show notes. The monkey in question is the one from the tea adverts in the UK. And given the contents of show 71, it's completely hysterical. So I'm not going to spoil the punchline. Huge, huge thanks to Minster for sharing that one. And that leads me nicely onto a story from the next web. Ostensibly, it was a piece crying foul that Kit Kat, that's the biscuit, wants a new emoji adding to the official collection. I didn't realise there was an official collection. I didn't. But once I'd researched it, it made sense. Anyway, this image is a Kit Kat to represent taking a break, which obviously is blatant advertising. They were taking more than a break. But it did lead me on to researching emoji policy, though. And what did I find? Flirtmoji. And? Well, they have what they describe as, brace yourself, a JJ emoji set. Yes, we won't dwell on that. I have put a link in the show notes, but that one I would say possibly... Not quite safe for work. I don't remember seeing that, you know. If you'd seen it, you'd remember. Trust me. Click the link and share your opinion. Carefully, carefully. Uh, I'll do it later. It's all right. Not brave enough to share your unmitigated opinion, then? No. Probably wise. Anyway, we also heard from Graham. He was enjoying 101 as his lunchtime listen. But it was quite long and it turned into an epic session that took him through to his afternoon tea during which time he regaled me in real time with photos of all his goodies. Did you see that? I did, yes. And uh, you got your own back with photos of your adventures in the kitchen, though, didn't you? Oh, I did. Industrial mixer and all. I was making Christmas cupcakes. Now, let's just pause for effect there while that, that's, that image sinks in. I was. I was making Christmas cupcakes. Um, although, to be more accurate, it was Adventures in the Office. I took the mixer up there. Uh, no, I took the mixer up there oh, for Oh, yes, that's true. Given the state of the kitchen during the uh, building work, I think that was a wise move. It was. Apart from the fact I've been finding ice and sugar in the most inopportune places for the rest of the week. As I'm sure it'll wear off. Yes, I'll get the vac out later. Oh, good man. They've now got an image of you in a pinny, you know. Didn't you once take a photo of me with the vac and tweet it? I did. I did. That was your love affair with the Hetty. That's the it one. was the pink vacuum cleaner. Yes. How did we end up with a pink vacuum cleaner? I, I think it was your father. <laughs> that would explain a lot. <laughs> Why did he buy a pink vacuum cleaner? I don't know. Let's not go there. 
It's a good job he's gone, because otherwise I might be tempted to ask him. Oh, never mind. Anyway, I got a lovely compliment from Jonathan about my singing. After two hours watching I'm a Celebrity Get Me Out of Here, I can only assume his hearing must have been affected. As he assured Mike, he had, brace yourselves, and I quote, a lovely singing voice. Uh, Well, I believe him. I'm saying nothing there. Uh, Now, Kevin made the classic mistake of attempting to eat while listening to the show. Oh, Kevin, you should know better than that. Exactly what I said. Rookie mistake. But as he said, lesson learned, never be eating when listening to MacBytes podcast. Laughing makes food spray. There's an image as well. Sincere apologies for that. It was apparently the MacBytes teeth that set him off. So if you could keep them under control today, I think Kevin would be grateful. Oh, I had the MacBytes teeth in at work. You know, I said, what did I say today? Um, Glugle <laughs> Chrome or something. <laughs> yes, but you had a bad day, didn't you? The network failed. I did. Yeah. That'll be Let's why. Let's not go there. Are the teeth connected to the network? Uh, yeah, they've got their own IP address. Yeah, that explains mm. it then. The whole lot went down. The teeth included. Oh, you had a good time at work mm. anyway. Ah, now, catch up. We also talked about Spotify crashing on the iPad Pro. They fixed it. Took the time, though. Well over two weeks. But happy to report it's a proper update. It's been re-engineered with uh, an interface for the iPad Pro. So you get the new virtual style keyboard supported. And um, my music's back. So we can all suffer now. With much better speakers. And just after the last show, I found a solution to the lack of protection of the back of the iPad Pro in the form of a case called the iPad Pro Backshell Case with Soft TPU Bumper. Names of these things are fantastic. That's a name and a half, isn't it? It is. It's all right. It gets better. Uh, That one was just a case for the back, but it did have the necessary cutouts so it would let it work with the Apple keyboard. And it was only $13.99. Now, alternatively, if you wanted a cover for the back and the front without the keyboard, there's always wait for it, the iPad Pro ESR smart stand case with clear back shell and soft TPU bumper. Catchy. I'll have one of those as well. I thought I'd have two. Um, Again, $13.99. Seems odd to be the same price as there's more to it, but um, there were a couple of options and um, I was particularly saying the back needed some protection and uh, that would give it to you. But more on iPad later. Now, I also forgot to mention in the last show, when we looked at the Logitech Create keyboard, to mention that that one was backlit, whereas the Apple keyboard isn't. So possibly, hence the bulk, I guess. But that one was um, backlit. Still not available in the UK, supposed to be available this week. But so expensive, I think I'll skip it. And then there was the keyboards, wasn't there? Yeah, we talked about the keyboard as well. And you were investigating further, I seem to remember. Well, I've been using it with a physical keyboard, um, my Logitech, and it works as it does with a Mac. So the delete key works with the backspace key um, and the forward delete can be achieved using the function key as a toggle. So that gives you something that the virtual keyboard doesn't. Um, I found it interesting in screens, which is a remote client, that the physical keyboard does work. And I had my doubts. At first I tried it and it, it didn't do a thing. And I thought, well, maybe it's not supported. And then I realised... If I was using the iPad keyboard, I'd have to tap the keyboard icon. So I did. And I thought, well, the thing is, when I tap that in this app, 
the keyboard springs up. But what happens if you've got a Bluetooth keyboard attached is that the button goes purple to indicate it's live and then the keyboard just works in the normal way. So once that button's purple, you know it's active and uh, you're good to go. What annoyed me today? I actually had a need to use Excel. Now this is a once in a, in a lifetime. Well, not quite a lifetime, but once in a very long time, I actually needed to use it. And every time I moved to a new cell, which I could do with the arrow keys, that, that bit was fine. But entering the cell, just like typing a number, typing the first character of whatever it is you're typing, the keyboard, the virtual keyboard, flashes onto the screen for just a fraction of a second. And I've no idea why, but obviously that flashing up moves the spreadsheet and you, you kind of lose your eye of where you were. So that is majorly annoying. But while I was working with it, uh, marooned out of my office, which is never good, I found a couple of things that were great additions that I did instinctively. And I'd done them before I thought, what are you doing? That's not going to work. And one was command and space. And what that does in any application, it takes you out of the application and takes you to the search screen. So it's working as an app switcher, really. And that works. It works very well. And the other one was command and tab. And again, I'd done it before I thought about it. And it does actually show you a list of running apps and you can toggle between them. And I was not expecting that. Now, maybe so that had been mentioned by Apple, but if, I, if it had, I'd completely missed it. And I showed you, didn't I, once I'd got it working again. My keyboard had disconnected, but once I got it working, it was impressive, wasn't it? It was. I thought that was cool. Mm. So I'm actually using that and I can see it's, it's starting to merge, isn't it? We talked about OS X and iOS merging. That's a definite crossover there. But I, I must admit, I didn't find it the best experience with what I was doing. If I was just writing something, it, it would probably have been fine. And if Excel had been playing ball, it would have been fine. But what I actually needed to do was sort out MacBytes. And for that, I need Scrivener. And nothing but Scrivener will do. So I ended up using it, um, using screens to tunnel back to my Mac and um, use it that way. And it wasn't too bad, but it wasn't as fast as it would have been if I was on my Mac. Nothing to do with screens, nothing to do with the app, just... Just the fact that you're scrolling across three screens remotely and you're trying to copy and paste and it's just, just a little bit awkward, but I'm sure they'll get there. And if, of course, there was a mobile version of Scrivener, I'd probably be done. Uh, but that, that was my day with it. Now, we also discussed the complete confusion that the Adobe mobile apps are right now. And it seemed to resonate with many of you who contacted us saying that you thought it was just you. And trust me, it's not. Um, this week, there was a piece on Medium from a guy called Brad Colbo, I think is how you pronounce it. And it's quite a long piece. I'll put a link in the show notes. It's well worth reading. Um, but the crux of what he was saying was that he had now the need to go and look at the Adobe mobile offerings. And he got there and he thought it was just complete confusion. And he didn't really know which one to use, which app to use. He found half a dozen Photoshop ones. There was things he'd never heard of with Adobe Ravel, Lifecycle, Mobile ES, all kinds of things. eSign Manager. And trust me, these things are still actually there. So he was really reiterating everything that we'd said last week. The more interesting thing was that Scott Belsky, who is the VP of Products and Community at Behance, which is also part of Adobe, 
uh, wrote back and he said, thanks for the feedback. As part of the effort to bring creative tools to the mobile world at Adobe, it's helpful and sobering to hear about your experience navigating between the modern mobile offering from Adobe and the rest of the stuff that's in transition. And this guide identified 31 apps. And this guy from Adobe says, yes, of the 31 you mentioned, many were indeed old experiments that have since been replaced. For example, colour and shape, which we talked about, had been merged into capture. Uh, brushes, shapes, colours, etc, etc. So he carries on. You also bring up a lot of apps that are not part of the creative suite, but rather associated with other businesses at Adobe. Marketing, document management and our new explorations around personal publishing and storytelling with apps like Voice and Slate. Your feedback makes one thing really clear. Our external story is not clear enough. I thought, you, you what? Your external story is not clear enough. That's a classic, isn't it? Mm. I think that's got to have come from marketing. Anyway, he goes on and uh, says that they're going to be dealing with that. Uh, no doubt we've got a long way to go. We need to clean up the old apps from an era when creativity was limited to a single app and saved to your camera roll. We need to better organise and merchandise new apps. And we need to support even more mobile workflows that would typically take you more time and more training to complete on the desktop. So hopefully they'll sort themselves out. Chances of them doing that could take a while. They just seem to be so fragmented with what they want to do. I mean, you were installing today, weren't you? And you said, what replaced Adobe Ideas? That one doesn't exist now, does it? And you, you literally didn't know. Yeah, I was I was just going to mention that. As you say, I was updating, well, not updating the iPad, but putting some apps onto my new iPad. And I had all the Adobe apps there on iTunes. And I was thinking, which ones should I install? And I couldn't remember which were the old ones, which were the new ones, which did what. And I understand exactly where it's coming from. The thing is, if you've bought previous apps, even if they were free, you know, you've gone through the purchase process. It's even worse because you then end up with older versions of ostensibly the same app. So I think I've got like three different versions of Adobe Connect. And it's very difficult to work out which is the latest one. You end up checking dates and things, which is not the best experience. So I think it'll take them quite a while to work out what to do with the old ones and really what their vision is to move forward. At the moment, it just seems to be so slap happy. They they don't really seem to have a clue what they want to do in terms of their, their offering as a, a global product. So if you think about how Creative Cloud is, the apps have been pretty standard for quite a while. And there isn't that in the mobile space. No, they, they don't seem to have much of a clue. But talking of the App Store, a big news, a sketch unceremoniously left the App Store suddenly last week. Now, it was an Apple Award winner and it made its name in there, really. Um, it was featured extensively by Apple, so they got a lot of publicity out of it. You could originally buy Sketch 1 and Sketch 2 direct from Bohemian Coding, who make it. But with version 3, I remember being very much pushed towards the App Store. I ended up buying it at the App Store because I went to their site and I looked around. And although I had version 2, they were doing one of these the price is the same, so it doesn't matter where you get it from. But I couldn't see a buy button on their site. So that's how come I ended up with version 3 from the App Store. But they did talk about the direct version, and they did provide beta versions that would work with the App Store version. So you, as long as you had the App Store version installed, you could install a beta over the top of it. A tweet and a blog post later, and it was gone. Literally disappeared straight away. No, No playing around. No, it's going in a couple of days. It had gone. Existing customers were transferred to direct licensing 
And the mechanism for that was you were to download a new version direct from Bohemian Coding. You needed to install that over the top of an existing Mac App Store version. Now, some people made the mistake of uninstalling first and then it didn't work. So it needed to be installed over the top of a Mac App Store version. You were then prompted for an email address. And as soon as you gave that, the installed version was licensed automatically. You did get an email with a license for future reinstalls. It didn't specify how many installs it was permitted. But the whole thing surprised me because I thought, what's Apple's policy on transferring licenses like that? Now, I was sure a while back the Omni Group fell foul of something similar. From memory, I think it was Omniplan, or it was certainly Omniplan for me. I don't know if they provided the same mechanism with other applications, you know, OmniGraffle, uh, OmniFocus. But I think you downloaded an app from their website and it found purchases from the App Store and it created direct licenses for you. And as I say, I am going from memory here, but I think it was around August, September time, 2013, because it was something I would have done. I had Omniplan from the store and I, I chose to buy that from the store, even though I qualified for an upgrade, because, again, it was blanket pricing. And it was at the time when the App Store was new and shiny and, oh, this will be so easy. I'll just get it from the App Store. Um, by August, September 2013, I was savvy enough to think that probably wasn't the wisest idea. And it is an offer that I would have taken up. But that was when my dad was really ill and I didn't get around to doing it you know, the minute that I saw the email. And literally within hours, this thing had been pulled and Apple weren't pleased. So how have they got round that with Sketch? Have the rules changed? I've not heard the rules have changed, but do you think they've changed? Uh, I don't know. Not heard anything hmm, like you Interesting saying. point. Because they've obviously, Apple haven't said no, so uh, that that's just carrying on. But I did this straight away because I thought maybe Apple will say no, and um, I won't want to hear about that. Anyway, the usual hysteria ensued. Think it's a big deal? Um, It doesn't reflect well on Apple, though, does it? No, they did a blog post and they said that they'd explain. But to be honest, other than saying it wasn't the recent damaged apps issue, it was accumulation of smaller issues, there wasn't really much in the way of clear exposition as to what the issues were for them. I know there are many issues with the Mac App Store, both for developers and customers. The usual, you know, no upgrade pricing, long review times, shifting goalposts, failed updates. That That's still happening for me, so I'm not pleased with that. The fact that some apps get pulled, um, the, the disconnect between developers and users. But I actually thought the bigger question was, do you think Apple will bother taking any notice? Mm. I honestly don't know. I mean, the success of the iOS App Store is actually in great contrast. You don't hear quite so many complaints in there. True. That could be to do with pricing. But I think the difference between the iOS App Store and the Mac App Store, a huge difference, is that one's in a monopoly position and the other isn't yet. I'm sure Apple would like it to be, but it's not there yet. No. Um an app store does make more sense on iOS than Mac, though. Like the uh, the Google Store for Android, it's more of a more of a well, mobile. It does. Thing. I mean, I remember when we had that Sony Cly. Do you remember what it was like trying to buy apps? I do. You literally had to find them, and then go to the store. Each one was different, and you had to actually, you know, 
go through their own purchasing process that was never the same twice. Then you had to download it. Then you had to transfer it manually to the device. I mean, some of the apps that we had were fantastic, but the process itself was very fragmented. So I can certainly see the benefit of it, but I think it's a little bit different on the Mac and I don't think Apple are treating it different on the Mac. I don't think it's breathing its last, but it could certainly do with a revamp. Oh, but the story of the week, well, one of them. Falling into the same category as bears and woods and Catholic popes is the news, massive air quotes, that Flash is dead. Yes, again. Uh, but apparently this time it's true. Adobe bowed to the inevitable. Yes, they've not killed it. They've rebranded Flash as Animate CC. And in true Adobe style, it's not actually available yet. Well, it is, only it's called Flash. But when it's called Animate CC, it will be available, but that'll be 2016. Now, sounds fabulous, but it will still be able to create Flash content. So, more of the same. You mean move along and nothing to see? Pretty much. But then it always was the case that it's not the tool, it's what you do with it. And I don't care what you made your ad with. I don't want it in my face when I'm trying to read a web page. And have you noticed all these Mac sites celebrating Flash's grand demise? Are you aware that one, your ads don't display correctly without Flash installed, and two, your videos don't play either? Two-faced buffoons. I've given up reading sites like that. I actually had noticed that because I've still got Flash installed. You are the one person that still has it installed? I am. Fair enough. Uh, now also heard from quite a few of you, the eagle-eared. The eagle-eared amongst you noticed that I mentioned we had secured a new Apple TV and you asked what we thought of it. Ordered it on pre-order day. It actually arrived the next day, which was surprising. I'm sure I didn't put the order until about three o'clock. I'm actually liking the concept of a pre-order that's not the traditional 10 days of checking the order status. Um, one thing that surprised me straight away, I thought, oh, decision to make, which was 32 or 64 gig. In the end, I went for the 64 because I figured you can never have too much storage, I figured. At least there was no 16 gig option. You know, that job lot they bought back in the mid 2000s. I thought they might do a 16 gig, try and shift some more of them. Mm. Um, so went for the 64, which was £169. And you're not letting the lack of a TV worry you then? No. My monitor has a HDMI input. And anyway... There's a TV downstairs somewhere of Mum's. Well, so rumour has it. Isn't it that dusty thing in the corner of the lounge? Uh, I believe so. Well, it doesn't really matter. I don't watch TV. Um, no, I was more interested in it for presentation purposes. Um, I was sincerely hoping that the fact there was apps available would open up an opportunity for the Apple TV, the iPhone, iPad, Apple TV integration in the delivery of presentations. Well, that's what I'm hoping for. At the moment, it's pretty much a case of watch this space. And what if it's just a glorified gaming box? Then it's going back. Mm. But to be fair, I have already found a great app. It's one that I've used on the Mac and iOS for years. It's called Air Video HD. It's similar in concept to Plex, but I never really got along with Plex. Um, it cuts the tie between the Apple TV and its reliance on an iTunes library. Because with iTunes, you've got a single library on a single machine, probably on a single drive. And my stuff's all over the place, logically all over the place in my mind. But, you know, some of the stuff doesn't belong in, in iTunes. It's um, recordings of sessions and stuff like that. So it, it's not you know, training sessions. 
Yes, you could put it in iTunes, but it just doesn't really fit. So I have those elsewhere and Air Video allows me to access the media files on multiple machines. The machine that hosts the video files needs to have a server component running, but that's free. And then you run the app on your Apple TV or iOS. You see a list of server machines. And once you've selected a machine, you just drill down through the share points on those machines. Um, the SharePoint's being created via the server app. You can either share a whole drive or you can be more specific. So if you've just got one folder full of stuff you want to share, you can do that. And I just find that that's a great way to work. I, I love it working that way. So um, that's got possibilities now. I read that there was no um, Apple Remote app. Not yet, and I wish there were. Um, but I've noticed there are a lot of remote control things via iOS on a per app basis. Maybe they were worried how an, uh, what a single Apple remote would interact with different apps. You know, these apps that have specific remotes of their own. So possibly that. On the upside, there's Siri. But let's just say we're in training mode with that one. Meaning? Well, I wondered what films I had, given that I don't watch TV that much. And then obviously it came to me. So I asked Siri to show me lesbian vampire killers. And? He didn't. Said he had no idea what I meant. I'd say that was a win then. He's got a point, you know. Anyway, while we're talking about TVs, news from Now TV HQ. That's Now TV to you and I. A special limited edition set. Not, not one, a whole set of Now TV boxes for Christmas. How best to describe them? They can only be described as worrying. Some of them are just plain terrifying. Remember that necrotizing green of the dismembered arm? I remember. The selfie stick. Well, one of them is a variant of that, replete with Shrek's face on it, surrounded by what can only be described as copious amounts of... Eating alert. Put the food and drink down. As I was saying, surrounded by what can only be described as copious amounts of snot. I did warn you. I'm pretty sure the one with the pink bow is even more offensive. Now, the cuddling polar bears were cute, but I'm not sure I'd want them adorning the tech gear. But you know what I find most offensive of the lot is the idea that these things are disposable. It's such a waste to make these things. The, the boxes themselves are cheaper to replace than keeping them for a reasonable amount of time where they serve their purpose. It cannot be cheaper for Sky to provide a box, a physical box that they have to ship to you and three months subscription for less than a three-month subscription alone. Now, there was a great deal at Amazon popping up in December. You could get a Now TV box with a voucher for three months entertainment channel subscription. Total cost, $9.99. The normal price of that, £40.97p. £20 for the box and £20.97 for the subscription. So, who isn't going to buy the box and get the voucher for $9.99, and then do what with the box? Throw it in landfill? Because, you know, you, you can't use more than a certain number of them. You're only allowed five devices, and the boxes count. I always thought the boxes shouldn't count, but they do. I just think that's just a, a grossly offensive waste of resources. But did I buy one? I did. I did. Having said that, I'll probably give the box to somebody else so they can get some use out of it, because I certainly don't need it. I just wanted the voucher. Ah, vouchers. Love vouchers. As all self-respected MacBiters know, we're big fans of iTunes vouchers here at MacBytes headquarters. 
But as with all things Macbites, the purchase process is usually fraught with a few pitfalls. And this week was no different, was it, dear? It wasn't, no. Uh, another, what should we say, complete fiasco? It's up there. It's up there. It is. Another complete fiasco with iTunes, iTunes vouchers. Ah, um, the teeth! The teeth, yes. They had to make an appearance, didn't they? Anyway, it's a couple of weeks ago, I think it was, when there was a, 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 a big offer on. So uh, I, th- I think we should thank um, Derek for this one. I think he found it. Oh, Derek's red hot spotting iTunes vouchers he on is. offer. I was, uh, I was up and out for work at uh, Stupid O'Clock, something like seven o'clock, half past six, something like that. Um, I went to our big Tesco's, um, Carrie will know the one, on um, Hanforth Dean. And it was the offer that was, I've forgotten which one it was now, there have been that many. It was £20 vouchers, uh, £25 vouchers for £20. That's right, yeah. So it was, a, it, was a, it was a decent offer. So I thought I would take 10 vouchers. So £250 worth of vouchers, £200. So picked up 10 vouchers, took them to the till, and she put four through. And I said to the woman, I said, uh, you're going to have to do this one at a time. And she knew, but then I have to always tell them just in case they don't, because I'm, I'm an expert at this and uh, they're not always. Even though I'm wondering whether they, they've been trained, you know, how to deal with uh, iTunes vouchers. Sometimes they have, sometimes they haven't. Anyway, um, the first four went through okay. No problem with that. And six failed. The problem was that she said to me, but how do I know which have failed? So I had to explain to her, I had to said, well, you know, each one of them has a number on the uh, on the receipt and we play uh, snap and we match them up. I said, give me give me all the vouchers, give, uh, give me all the receipts. And she said, I can't until um, you've paid for them. So I paid for the first four and we worked out the six that have failed. Um, so what I did is I went out and picked another six off the off the shelf. And uh, then we tried again. And again, four worked and two failed. So I paid for the four. She kept the two that failed. I went back to the display for the third time, got another two, which worked. And as I say, luckily it was seven o'clock and there weren't many people in the queue um, for paying because they've only got one till on at that time and you can't use the self-service for iTunes vouchers. Unexpected raid on iTunes vouchers in the bagging area. So anyway, I was working it out what was going on and I, I reckoned that it was set up to only allow you to put through £100 worth of vouchers in a single transaction. That made sense because it was accepting four each time. But nowhere on the on the post or on the marketing, not, e- not even in the tiny print, did it actually say that, unless I missed it, of course. Although, as she said, if that was the case, it should have come up when, when she tilled it in. So, if you wonder why they never have any in, it's because half of them fail and then can't be reused. Do you know, it's just as well it was seven o'clock in the morning, because otherwise, if you'd have had to have gone to the back of the queue every time you went and got the vouchers, they'd have been able to clamp you in the car park and charge you 90 quid to let you out. They would. Hmm, handy of them. Anyway, that adventure was only to be surpassed by an even better deal that Derek found. This time you could buy three £15 vouchers for £35, which was 22% off. The last offer was only 20%. So... You staged another raid at Tesco's. I did, and this time I decided to buy six. So there I was, six vouchers, and the guy on the till obviously hadn't been trained because the other person on the other till, because that day there were two of them on, I think it must be because it's nearer Christmas, she had to stop what she was doing and 
take the other guy through the process. And she said to me, um, you'll, you can only put through two at a time. <laughs> and I said, hang on a minute. How can I put through two at a time when this offer is buy three and get some money off? Oh, you outwitted them again. I did. So anyway, there I was. She put three through, worked okay, paid for them, put the next three through, worked okay, paid for them. So I was a happy bunny on that occasion. In the end. In the end, yeah. yes. Quite handy for Tesco's, isn't it? Have you keep going in and training their staff for free. Leave a bill next time. Yeah, that's not a bad idea, is it? Yeah, wrap it around a tin of peas. I usually find that works for me. Now, a Christmas ad that I can really get behind. Microsoft spreading the spirit of Christmas. Yes, Christmas, by the way, not holidays, not the season, not winter. Christmas. Yes, I'm one of those people. It's Christmas. Do you know, I actually heard something rather rather good this morning on uh, Radio 2. And it's not often that I'm off early enough to hear that. But uh, did you know they have a kind of um, reflective moment on Chris Evans? No. No, neither did I. But it was a rabbi on talking about um, Hanukkah. And um, <laughs> Chris Evans said to this rabbi, and what are you doing for Christmas? <laughs> So the rabbi said, well, I'm going to be celebrating Hanukkah. And he said, oh, right. So when he'd finished talking, he said, oh, and happy Christmas. The rabbi said, happy Christmas to him. And then they said, happy Hanukkah to each other. That works for me. Yeah. There's none of this happy holidays rubbish. Uh, anyway, uh, as an aside, right, this, this ad is genius, total genius. Um, it's the Microsoft staff in the Microsoft New York office, together with a local children's choir, And uh, they're at the store and they head out to share the Christmas spirit with some old friends who turn out to be the staff of the Apple store on Fifth Avenue. I just loved it. I I much prefer that attitude than the constant sniping between companies. It's probably pushing pushing it a little bit to think Samsung might come up with something equally adorable. It's probably not going to happen, but I thought it was so wonderful. Anyway, the link will be in the show notes. If you've not seen it, you've got to see it. It's a really good ad. But it wasn't all joy this week, was it? No. Oh, no. Oh, this, this, this got me. This was a story you may have heard of, but I wouldn't be surprised if you hadn't. Um, it all started when a gentleman called Troy Hunt, who is a specialist in computer security, made a course on ethical hacking. I've not seen the course. I have no idea what that involves, but ethical hacking. And he uploaded this course to Pluralsight, which is a training portal. And I don't think it had been there above a few days when, to his dismay, he found that someone claiming to be Roy H. Think about that. Clever pun there. He's Troy Hunt, and this is Roy H. Had ripped off his course and posted it to another site. Now, whoever had done that had removed the watermark that all plural site courses have and Troy's introduction and claimed the the course to be his own. Horrifying. Yes. Uncommon? No. But the ensuing fuss would lead you to believe that nothing like this had ever happened before. And the truth of the matter is, sadly, virtually every course is ripped off in some form or other, and usually within hours. You'll find most brand new courses available for download with torrents. I'm guessing because it's easy to steal. People who wouldn't dream of stealing a physical product fail to be so circumspect when it comes to virtual products. Maybe that's to do with the perceived cost of creation, which, to be honest, isn't true. One final video or a series of videos. And when you look at that, you only see the tip of the iceberg. And obviously with you, I'm preaching to the converted, aren't I? You are. But 
if you just think about what it takes, there's the time to learn or hone the training skills. So if you've never trained before, you'd need to, to learn how to do that. Then there's the time that it takes to learn and become proficient with the topic that you intend to train. Then you've got to create and refine a course structure. You've got to create data for that. And worse still, some things are more time consuming. Certain topics are way more time consuming than others. And I always say to you, don't I, with your data, that although it might be new data in Excel, two and two is always going to be four. And if you find out that it's coming back and saying it's five, then it's broken. But with something like Photoshop or something designish, it can take ages. I mean, there was one demo that I did and uh, we, we know it as Bunny the dog. It was a picture of a dog from um, a copyright free site where you could use these images. And I got this dog. It was called Bunny. And I was trying to make a selection of it. I had to do 10 to 12 dry runs to be certain that the selection could be repeated, that it was the best image to use for the demo and that there was enough explanation to narrate the process. Then, of course, you've got the rehearsal. Then you've got your recording time. And I would say it's not unusual to have maybe 50-50, 50% usable content and 50% gets discarded. I'd say that's a good average, wouldn't you? Yeah. Sometimes you lose more, but you seldom lose less. Then you've got the editing of the video and you either need to do that yourself, which is another skill you need, or you need to outsource it for which you need to pay. Then there's all the equipment that you need. So microphone, studio configuration, screen recording software. So armed with that knowledge, back to Udemy and the stolen course. I actually thought most of the coverage made the mistake of thinking that Udemy is equal to Pluralsight. But it's not. Pluralsight pay freelance content creators to create content, the copyright of which belongs to Pluralsight. Udemy is a completely different scenario. Udemy allows users to host their own content on the Udemy platform in return for a percentage of the revenue. Now, obviously, they are expected to own the copyright to that material. But I think that's a significant difference there. And as I say, it's not been made clear in anything I've read regarding this. Plural sites manage every aspect of the creation process, which they would. It's going to be their content. They're going to be the legal owners of it. So there are editors managing the whole process, peer review of finished materials. It's a very hands-on directed process. Now, coming to this situation, having worked for Plural Site, you might imagine that Udemy are identical. And as I say, they're not. Udemy is a platform. Is there an expectation they're proactively curating? And I know that you know that because we've talked about it, but what would your expectation be? Yeah, if I didn't know better, I'd assume they are. Yeah, I think you would assume at least they were checking the provenance of the materials uploaded. And the reason I found this so fascinatingly interesting was that I've been researching Udemy for about 18 months. Um, I found the platform and I thought seriously uh, about it being an obvious outlet for the training materials that I create. But there was just something there that was I was uncomfortable with. And I thought, well, what I'll do is I'll sort of hang around in these private forums for creators. So I created myself an account, got registered as an instructor and started reading what people had to say. And there have been many changes in those 18 months. Um, one thing that really kicked it off was when they changed their policy on thumbnails and you could no longer have text on thumbnails because a lot of the people that were creating courses or finding courses and uploading them, you know, they're using it to build their brand and they wanted their name splashed all over it. So they changed that. 
but they've also changed their standards as well. So audio and video wise, they want better quality content on their marketplace. And obviously in these forums, there are many, many genuine folks without a background in training trying to create courses and they're struggling with all the aspects of it. I mean, literally, you know, from what microphone shall I use to my audio sounds terrible, video, screencasting, scripting, how do I create supporting materials? How do I find the time? Technical woes. I mean, how many people have we read that have recorded it or they thought they did and they forgot to press record? Plenty. So for the for the handful that succeed and it really does seem like a handful their content's ripped off within hours and that is content they have put on udemy of their own now it could be other udemy instructors but it's actually much more likely to be torrent sites and as i was reading all this stuff i thought this raises serious questions for udemy how much should they scrutinize the content posted on their service and how much do they scrutinize it because there is a review process and the only time I've heard of stuff being rejected is down to quality. I don't think you've heard any different, have you? No. No, it's usually audio quality, isn't it? More so than video even. Mm. How aware are they of content piracy? I mean, <laughs> with this one, they certainly are. But then how aware of it should they be? Should they be more proactive? Should they ask for proof? And when they're made aware that there's a claim in relation to piracy, how swiftly should they act? And which party should have the presumption in their favour? Because you could have somebody who's put a course up there and they legally do own this course. They created it. It's their course. And somebody comes along who's a competitor who thinks, hmm, that course is better than my course. So they make a claim and it's a false claim. You know, you, do you want that course taken down straight away? So person B can get in there and make sales. It is a minefield. I, I do appreciate it. it's very difficult for them. Undeniably, though, the genuine copyright holder should have their rights upheld. And I think in a timely manner with the process as simple as possible. And that was something that this gentleman pointed out, that in order to stake a claim to his own course, he was going to need a Udemy account to do it. Which made me think about all the people I've heard talking about the Google Play Store and Android apps, where it's a little bit like the Wild West when it comes to ripoffs. And to be honest, those people are probably the ones who are threatening to boycott Udemy in light of these revelations. Which got me thinking, you know where I'm coming from, don't you? I do. Mm. Before you can cast the first stone at Udemy, as an Apple user, ask yourself a question. Do Apple have the same duty that you would seek to impose on others? There are plenty of examples of ripoffs in the App Store in terms of icons, descriptions, functionality. Do you remember Flappy Bird? I do. It was about, ooh, coming up for two years ago. And once the guy had pulled it, he didn't like all, all the um, attention he was getting. He pulled it. So many imitations went in there. But they weren't an actual ripoff of the code. They, they were lookalikes. That's a much greyer area than a direct ripoff. But surely it should be clear cut to be able to look at a course and say that course is a course that's completely lifted and be made available for sale on another platform, which is what we're talking about with Udemy. This course that was on Plural Site has been lifted. It's now for sale on Udemy and they, the person selling it doesn't have the right to sell it. What if that ever happened in the App Store? Could it? Surely not, given the time that Apple take to review apps. 
Maybe surprisingly, I can assure you it could happen. And indeed it has happened with one of my courses. And as I read all this stuff, I thought, well, whatever standard you demand from Udemy, you should demand from Apple. At least Udemy are acknowledging the problem. There is a clear option on every course to report a DCMA violation. Now, as I said, you do need a Udemy account to do it. And once that claim has been made, the material was removed pending the resolution of the copyright claim. So I thought, and what do Apple do? What's the process? Where's the report this content button? I couldn't find one. I doubt they want to draw attention to their precious walled garden having been infiltrated with stolen material. But I did manage via several internet searches to actually find where you need to go. So just in case it's happened to you, like it's happened to me, I'll put the link in the show notes. But this I couldn't believe when I read it. Uh, it's a lot of legal ease. I will narrow it down to the pertinent points. But there's two pages of it. And it says, if you believe that an application available in the App Store violates your intellectual property rights, use this form to submit a claim to the App Store legal team. Then it explains about if it's something else, if it's music. It clearly then states that apps on the App Store are made available by third party providers. And once you've identified an app and described the alleged infringement, we will respond via email with a reference number. So far, so good, I thought. And put you in direct contact with the provider of the disputed app. Any further contact with the App Store legal team should be made via the email and include the reference number. And I thought, just a minute, let me read that bit again. We will respond via email with a reference number. We will put you in direct contact with the provider of the disputed app. What for? Hmm. So it then asks you to um, put your information in. And then it says the name and address that you enter will be supplied to the providers of the disputed app. By submitting this information, you consent to Apple sharing the information with the provider. Really? Yeah, I was horrified at this stage. We will email both parties so you can work directly with each other to resolve the dispute. And then, then it goes on some more. Uh, if you don't provide a company name, we will identify you by your first and last name. Your phone number will not be shared with the developer and will be treated in accordance with our privacy policy. In other words, it's got now to do with us, Gov. Yes, but I thought worse than that, because if somebody's put a stolen app in there, if they've made the effort to go and steal your content, what kind of meaningful conversation can you have with them? Mm. Or did I miss the memo on that? I was horrified. So, the very next day, there was a piece in 9 to 5 Mac. This is getting complicated, but it's worth it. And um, it, was, it was one of these posts in 9 to 5 Mac that was very, very underplayed. It was just a quiet little piece. Um, it was from a gentleman called Brian, I think it's Raub, um, an entrepreneur with a with a piracy problem. And the story rattles away pretty much like mine. And the question was asked, to what extent can Apple wrap themselves in a cloak of immunity? Um, it's, their it's their playground and it's their problem. I just thought this laughable approach of an Apple arranged come by our session was completely ridiculous. Just imagine you're mugged. The police know who did it, no investigation, but they suggest that you sit down together and have a chat to sort your differences out. Seriously? Well, that piece regarding Brian Raub also points out that 
To attempt to prove that the content on the App Store was his, he actually had to buy all 13 apps. They agreed to deal with those 13 apps and they were taken out of the store. And within the week, there were 20 new ones from the same developer. And again, then, then it starts again. He had to buy all 20 to prove the fact that it was stolen content. So he was forced to give money to the company taking his content and as such, 30% of it to Apple. Is that a crazy system or what? It is. I'm just speechless here. I was surprised. That was an understatement. And to be honest, it doesn't even tell you anything, does it, about who's got to prove what? Mm. Because there's evidential problems there. How do you prove a negative? Now, I know I'm a trained lawyer and I know I studied evidence, but this is quite a simple concept. I can prove that I own something. But how do I prove that you don't own something? It's tricky. It's similar to trying to prove that you didn't do something in criminal law. So the burden of proof is on the prosecution. You are innocent until proven guilty. It's not for the defence to prove that they didn't commit the crime, excepting incredibly exceptional circumstances. But the prosecution need to prove their case beyond a reasonable doubt. And in civil law, it's the same, just to a lower standard of proof, which is satisfied so you are sure. But either way, if you do own something, it's fairly easy to prove it. You've got the receipt, you've got the work product. I mean, I don't know about you, but I keep all my original recordings replete with the not safe for work bloopers. I can always prove that that content's mine. Absolutely, I can. But I just think, are they insane? Washing their hands of it is just not sustainable in the long term. It's going to tarnish the app store. It will tarnish their image. I don't know how they're getting away with it so far, to be honest. I just don't think it's a case of shrugging and saying, well, of course, that sort of thing will always happen. It doesn't have to. You're giving the thieves a global platform to peddle their purloined content and you're taking 30% of the price for doing it which is handling proceeds of copyright theft. I actually thought this is probably not the way to word it, but you'll understand, it's tantamount to living off immorally obtained earnings. It's actually got a name, which uh, was something I hadn't heard of. This wasn't my area of speciality in the law. Something that intellectual property lawyers call vicarious copyright infringement. And apparently that is when someone illegally copies a creative work and uses a third party to help them distribute it. So, given their altruistic image, I think it's a simple question to ask Tim Cook. Do Apple feel good about this? Because they're the only ones with the opportunity to do something about it. And I really think that they should. You could say it could be too expensive for them. But what do you think? Because I think that's what the 30% is for. Yeah, it's something that they need to address. But getting two people to talk to each other isn't the way to do it, is it? It's like... When you get, like you said, when you get some victim of a of a crime to go in in prison and talk to the person who's done it, it's it's not the way to do it. I actually think it's worse than that because you know maybe that person's genuinely remorseful, but the person who has deliberately stolen your stuff and deliberately put it up for sale, going through somewhere like Apple, we're not talking about somebody who's selling it, you know, behind a pub, hoping to get away with it. We're talking about somebody who's incredibly brazen. And you've got to buy the stuff to prove that it's yours in the first place. So you're giving them money. You know, um, so you've had your watch stolen. You're behind a pub. Is that my watch? Well, I'll buy it back and then I'll tell you if it's mine. It's just crazy. Mm. But <clears throat> shall we move on before I explode? 
I'm thinking of a new section for the show, Annoyance of the Week. That one could have been it. But I have another one. So what did you break this time? It was my trackpad. Um, it lost the ability to zoom. Everything else was fine, so I could click, move, select. Everything apart from pinch to zoom. Which was a big crisis for me, as that's the only thing I use it for. Uh, all I do with it is zoom, audio and video timelines, and then click with the mouse that's in my other hand. Obviously, I did the usual things, which was checking the batteries were okay. It was turned on and enabled in system preferences. And it was. It was working, apart from the fact it wasn't working. But, you know, the system was telling me it was working. So, having tried everything else, including turning the thing off and on, what did I need to do? I needed to disable the zoom in the system preferences and then re-able the zoom. Seriously, this is basic stuff, Apple. Why does stuff like that happen? How does stuff like that happen? I can understand the things stopping responding, but not to only certain gestures. And I'm just thankful I haven't done the El Capitan thing on my main Mac yet. No, I've got that planned for Christmas. Oh, so do I. I'm just not sure which one yet. And late breaking news as we started recording. Dropbox have out-googled Google. And what have they killed this time? Mailbox and Carousel. Got to love the language they use. Building new products is about learning as much as it's about making. It's also about tough choices. Over the past few months, we've increased our team's focus on collaboration and simplifying the way people work together. In light of that, we've made the difficult decision to shut down Carousel and Mailbox. Well, that's one way to streamline your communication, isn't it? Get rid of the mail client. Ultimately, we think this increased focus will help us create an even better experience for you in the months and years to come. Mm, heard it all before. And no doubt we'll hear it all again. I will never understand companies spending millions buying technology and then ultimately bin it. It's all very well saying you've learnt lots and you'll add the technology to your core product. But isn't that like sticking an ashtray on a motorbike? As an ashtray, it's fabulous, but on a bike, not so much. I like your analogy. Ah, good. Last time we said it was a good time to revisit cloud services in light of the changes Microsoft made to OneDrive, for which read decimation of the service. It's a common thread, isn't there? Do you think it's because it's December? Let's have a clear out. Could be. Anyway, we start today with a look at what Box has to offer. Yeah, Box was the second cloud service that I signed up for after Dropbox. And at that point, I was quite happy with Dropbox didn't have too many files that I needed to access um, away from the house. I only had one Mac and I used an external hard drive for backup. And I signed up for Box when they had an offer of uh, 50 gig for free. I can't remember when that was. Oh, I know when that was. It was the day in 2011, the fateful day we picked up Mac Byte Siri. Oh, I'm glad you remember. Life's not been the same since, has it? No. Not sure that's anything to do with Box, though. No, but um, back to Box. I've hardly used it, you know. I've, you know, I've been happy with Dropbox, as I say. Um, I've been happy with OneDrive. But I've decided to take another look at Box after they implemented it at work. Now, at some point, I decided to start using a cloud storage rather than local storage, probably when I had uh, multiple iOS devices and a decent internet connection at work because it meant I could uh, easily transfer work stuff between work and my Mac. Um I did think about using OneDrive for current documents, things that I was working on, and using Box for archive. 
But um, I kind of gave that idea up when I tried to upload several gigabytes to Box through a browser and it uh, bombed out. Now, there is an alternative way, but at the time I didn't know about it. And to be honest, one terabyte of storage with one drive from Microsoft, I've found that 50 gig is uh, just a drop in a bucket. Now, in terms of what Box can offer you, uh, you can sign up for a free account at box.com. They'll give you 10 gigabytes of storage. Um, you have a maximum uh, file upload size of 250 meg, which will do for most people. But uh, I think there's a certain person around here who might find that limit sort of... Um... I have a few files that are bigger than that. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, if you want to pay, you can pay £7 a month. And they'll give you 100 gig of storage and a maximum file size of 5 gig. Is that any better? That's more like it, but I wouldn't say it's all there. As I say, they they are really aiming this at the, the corporate market, although there is this, this personal element to it. They're, they're mainly... Um, they're, 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 pa- they're, they're planned pans. Mm. <laughs> Either you're breaking up terribly or your teeth are. Really got the teeth in today, haven't I? No, the the plans they have are, as I say, they're aimed at businesses. In addition to the more storage, if you go for a business account, you get things like upload larger files, more security, password protection of files, locking documents to prevent multiple users editing the same document at the same time, version control, the ability to restore a previous version of a file. So if you overwrite a file or edit the wrong file, as as I've done in the past, you can roll back to a, a previous version. So from a business point of view, there are definitely some benefits there. In terms of managing files, Uh, You've got two ways to do it. You can do it through a browser. Go to box.com, sign in and upload, delete files straight through the browser. The other way to do it is to install a free app called Box Sync. And what that does is it creates a folder on your hard drive, sticks it in your home folder on your Mac and calls it Box Sync. And what you then do is log into your account on a browser, choose the folders that you wish to sync. So you don't have to sync everything. You can choose which folders you want to sync. And what it basically does is puts a copy of those folders onto your hard drive. The downside is that it takes up space on your hard drive. The benefit is that you've got a better way to manage files. You don't have the the limitations of using a browser. I think the main problem with using the browser is the the fact it seems to bomb out when you're uploading a a huge amount of files, as I found. If you want to edit a file, if that file's on your hard drive because it's in a synced folder, just open it up in the usual way. Um, So say it's a a, a PNG file, double-click it, open it up in preview or whatever you've got set up to handle PNGs, edit it, save it, and... As soon as you save it, as long as your Mac's connected to um, the internet, it'll just update the version that's uh, that's in the cloud. If it's not on your hard drive, if the file you want to open is not on your hard drive, then you can actually edit it in a browser. So go into your browser, find the file, click on its name, and it opens it in your browser in a preview. And then you can choose to edit the file. As long as you've got um, another app installed called box edit 
And it's another free app that you can actually download from Viabox's website. Uh, you can actually edit any file, assuming that you've got the software installed on your Mac to, to do it. If you want to edit Office files, Word, Excel and PowerPoint, if you want to actually edit them in Word, Excel and PowerPoint, you need this add-in called Box Edit. Or you can use Office Online, which are browser-based versions of Office. And another option, you can download the file, edit it and re-upload it. But I always find that is long-winded. If you prefer to use Google Docs, there is Google Docs Google Spreadsheet integration. So if you want to store Google Doc files in Box, um, you can create new Google Docs files in Box. Go to New, select Google Docs or Google Spreadsheets, sign into your Google account, create the document, and then it saves it straight to Box. And it also integrates with lots of other things, other services like Slack, Facebook and Chatter. And it integrates with things like iAnnotate and Goodreader on um, iOS devices. So you can upload files to and open files from a box within those apps. I know that's something that you do a lot, isn't it? Um, stick files in, in Box or other cloud services and, and open them in Goodreader or iAnnotate. I do. I was keeping files within Goodreader. But once I got more than one iPad and more than one phone, that wasn't manageable. So what I tend to do now is, as soon as I've got a new device, install Goodreader, set up all the connections to all the online services, and use that as the definitive storage, and just pull down what I want and then push back what I've edited. Now, if you think Box is just for storing files, then think again. In addition to being able to store files, you can create notes. So in a way, it's a you might think of it as a competitor to OneNote, or Evernote. Box notes are richly formatted notes, as I say, similar to OneNote or Evernote, but they're stored in a folder in Box. So you don't have this metaphor of, uh, of OneNote and Evernote where you have a notebook. Each note is standalone, but you could organize them into folders and the notes are fully searchable. So you can add text uh, that's formatted. So font, different fonts, bold, italic, underline. You can have bullet points. You can have checkboxes. You can add tables. You can add images. And you can do all of this directly inside your browser with no additional software. It allows multiple people to edit a note at the same time, which is really handy for, for say, taking notes in a meeting. And as I said, there are an, uh, there's a whole range of apps. There, there, there must be a um, you know, a couple of hundred at least, maybe more apps um, and add-ins that are, are available for, for Box. And one of the ones that we looked at is for the desktop version of Lightroom, where it lets you export edited photos uh, to Box. Although, to be honest, I handed over the part this part of the research to you, didn't I? Probably wise. Yeah, Lightroom users are probably familiar with published services. By default, you'll find there is published to hard drive, published to Facebook and published to Flickr. And published services is a method for getting photos edited in Lightroom out of Lightroom for sharing and to do it in an easy way. Now, publishing to a hard drive sounds weird, but it's good to have one common way to publish to all of the services. And publishing allows you to save, export, publish settings and reuse them. 
Those settings can include the size in pixels of the image, the metadata you want applied, any metadata you want stripped out, the quality of the image, and so much more. And exactly the same principle is used when it comes to publishing to other services. So the great thing is the whole system is extensible. So other publishing services can be added to Lightroom and that's what Box does. You download an installer, you install it, an extra item appears in the published services and there's lots of configuration options available for that published service for Box. Now Lightroom users will understand that concept, although you thought it did something entirely different. I did. I thought it let you import from Box and not export to it. Well, you could do that with the Box Sync client. Um, sync into a local folder and then import to Lightroom from there. So it's not impossible. Um, the one thing to note is that this Box Lightroom plugin, although I think you found it on Box's site, it isn't actually provided by Box. It's a third-party developer um, and it costs $15. Now, $15 is not a prohibitive amount for what it does and the time it could save you. But you do need to be aware that the price is per major version of Lightroom. Now, since Adobe are moving away from big version updates to a more incremental model as a subscription service, I'm not sure what qualifies as a major update in those circumstances. So you might have to um, research that a bit. But I think it is worth it if you have the need to host images in the cloud and to do it quickly and easily. It would be a great way to showcase images if you were out for the day and you've done your edits on Lightroom on the iPad and you just want to publish them quickly so people could see them. It'd be also a very good way to provide access for clients because with the security that you were talking about, you could add the security into the Lightroom export and mean that only the clients could see them. So I think it's definitely worth looking at depending on your circumstances, but it seemed to work well. Going back to Box, there is an iOS app which is quite powerful. It allows you to manage files, share files with others, and add comments and you can also open files up but it opens them in a preview and if you've got the personal pro account which is that seven pound one you can automatically upload photos and videos to your box account however if you want to open a file in excel or word or powerpoint uh, if you want to edit it or just view it then you need the excel word or powerpoint for ios app installed and then when you select open in Excel from the uh, the box app, it copies the file to Excel as read only. So then you have to make a duplicate, which will be saved to the iPad. Hope you're following this. Unless you sign into box in Excel and then you end up with two copies, one in box and one on the iPad. So a better solution is to use the Box app as a file management tool. And if you want to open a file in Office, you can actually add Box as a service in the Office app and open it directly in the Office app. As you can see, it's quite confusing. Box is aimed more at the corporate market. So for individuals as a storage solution, I'd recommend it. But to get the most of it, you do have to pay. So that was Box. Next time, we'll be moving on to look at probably the most well-known cloud storage solution, Dropbox. But now, iPhone, 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 iPhone. Yes, something caught my eye. A story from The Telegraph showing the importance of backing up your iPhone. A British man is celebrating a victory for the common man after successfully suing Apple. 
There's a common thread with that this week as well. For accidentally wiping treasured photos from his phone, Derek White said he was devastated after his honeymoon photos and 15 years of contacts were lost from his iPhone. I thought that would be pretty tricky to do, given most people have an iCloud account and it pretty much automatically backs up everything anyway. True. But... He was awarded almost £2,000 after winning the case, £1,200 compensation and 773 in court costs after a judge ruled Apple had been negligent. Didn't seem to be Apple that weren't backing up at this stage. But anyway, the 68-year-old took his phone to Apple's flagship store in Regent Street in December 2014 after receiving a text message about a fault on the device. That also sounded a bit dodgy to me. I think I probably would run off to Apple if I got a text message like that, but... I'd definitely have backed up first. He said staff fixed the problem, but also wiped all of his content from the phone, only afterwards asking him if it had been backed up. The retired property developer who had just beaten cancer when the incident happened said he was determined to have his day in court. I would not let it go, he told the Evening Standard. Having fought cancer, I was not going to get defeated by Apple. My wife was reduced to tears when they wiped the phone. Everyone tells me this has happened to them or their mate. I did this for the common man and I would say to anyone who's got a gripe with Apple, don't let them boss you about and ignore it. Mr White told the court he had his life saved on his phone, adding he'd lost his favourite honeymoon video of a giant tortoise biting him on the hand. In court papers, Apple's lawyers said the claimant had not demonstrated how he had suffered any loss. I thought that was crazy because it's not only those circumstances where you could be left with the same result. You've got to think about losing your phone, an accident with your phone your phone being stolen, hardware failure, software failure, iOS updates. I mean, that's always a classic here, isn't it? Do you remember that that update that took about three weeks after it got bricked? Mm, First yeah. time ever my phone had got bricked with an update. And it's a terrifying moment. And I know my stuff's backed up. I can't believe that people still don't know how important it is to back it up. Because even somebody of his advanced age must have surely thought if his life's on that phone... What if he drops it down the toilet? That could happen. True. Exactly. I nearly did that the other day. See what I mean? And I would say you're young enough to know better, but clearly not. Oh, well. Thank you. No, there was a couple of points about that. Do the Genius Bar not ask about backups first? I think they do. Because they always have done when I've been lurking in there. In fact, I always think at Team Trafford, they use it as a filter for clearing the queue. They'll say, oh dear, and what's wrong with it? Oh, have you got a backup? No! Go home and make one now. And it reduces the queue. Then there was the classic line, the claimant has not demonstrated how he suffered any loss. Do you know, I've been transported back to my legal days today. Um, That sounds like we were in the wrong, but there was no harm suffered, which sounds remarkably like something you say when you know... You've been caught with your trousers down and you're trying to cover your embarrassment. Lesson being, back everything up at least three times, if not more, but a minimum of three times in three totally different locations. I I mean, it's sad, but like I say, that could have happened for any number of reasons. I think it's even sadder that Apple had to um, stoop to the level of the claimant has not demonstrated how he suffered any loss. And there was, when I read another piece on that, and what he actually wanted, you'll love this one, was £5,000. 
Now, why would he want £5,000? No idea. He wanted to go on another honeymoon. <laughs> nice try. Uh, just back up. Make sure you back up. Well, I tried that the other day, didn't I? Oh, yes. You've not shared this 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 other shopping disaster. I'm glad I'm not out doing this business at this time of year. Shall I leave that for another episode? Oh, yes. Shopping with Mike. New section. Shopping with Mike. Yes, it was a disaster. Ah, but in other news. iPad, 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 iPad. 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 Yeah, I spotted um, something, a story about a golden ring. There's somebody's dinner gone. Um, it was a rare manufacturing error on the iPad Pro and it gave um, a silver back with a gold touch ID ring. Mm, standards are slipping. Well, I thought it was more like Willy Wonka's golden ticket. Do you win a tour of Apple HQ in Cupertino? You could make a fortune on eBay. Apple actually said that to him when he rang them to, to tell them or ask them what was wrong with it. And um, needless to say, it duly appeared on eBay only days later. But I have no idea what it was sold for as it was pulled after that. But uh, if you wanted to see pictures of said iPad, it actually did look quite nice. I was surprised. Um, I've put links in the show notes. Well, at least your Apple Pencil arrived. Eventually. Ah, another delivery farce. It wouldn't be an Apple product launch without a delivery farce. And there was me, patting myself on the back, that I had lucked out again. DPD were delivering it. What could go wrong? Then, shattering news. It would be delivered between 5.32 and 6.32 on a Friday night. So, all day having to work without my new toy. Somehow, I managed. But then, disaster. It got to 6.35 and no sign of my toy. The depot closed at 7.30. So I had 55 minutes at that stage. The depot's probably... Actually, as the crow flies, it's not that far, is it? It's not, no. It's in Earlham. So, but for the ship canal being in the way, which means you can only get over it by the motorway bridge or um, a little toll thing that I wouldn't try in a high wind, um, it wouldn't be that far at all. But because you've got to go round... 55 minutes was cutting it fine but at that stage I had no idea where it was anyway so I gave them 30 minutes after delivery time and then I rang futile I thought as I raged looking for a number because no doubt the call centre staff would have left probably around the same time as the social media support team did at five o'clock but I found a phone number not an easy task in itself and amazingly there was someone there so uh, put me on hold while they contacted the depot. Reported back, the driver had, and I quote, had trouble all day. Yes, so had I. I was waiting for my toy. Um, didn't specify what the trouble was, but it wasn't my problem. Apart from the fact, of course, that he had my Apple Pencil. But there was good news. He had 12 deliveries left, mine included. So we had a little chat. I was assured it would arrive that night. Another two hours later, still no sign. I wasn't in the best frame of mind at this stage, was I? You weren't, no. No, and you were suffering for that. So, I rang back. They were still there, which was lucky. Um, now, to talk to them, you've got to enter your parcel number. So you're going through all this rigmarole before you can even talk to somebody. So, I typed in my number, and then I put the phone back to my ear. And I was unceremoniously told that my parcel was back at the depot. For delivery on Monday. Monday! <laughs> Not happening. We had another little chat. Persuasive as ever. 
Oh, indeed. Within 40 minutes, I had my new tech toy in my hands. It might have been 10pm on a Friday night, but I had it. Well, I said persuasive, but Graham said, I bet they made the driver miss his kid's school play to deliver it. Somewhat harsh, I thought. Lesson being, don't make me promises and then think of reneging on them. Uh, so, ripped it out of the box, paired it. Didn't bother reading the manual, which became interesting later, but for a wholly different reason. Um, I guess to stick it in the lightning port, to pair it. But then I wondered how logical I thought that was, but it worked. So I used the notification centre to check the charge in it. Pleasantly surprised, I think it was about 92%, and set about drawing something. So I drew a pencil sketch of Maya, and the feel of it was perfect. And then a lot of people started talking about the iPad Pro replacing the iPad Air. And for me, no, I use both and I'm actually using both more than I expected. Obviously, the iPad Air is more portable, but because of that, it fits into a small bag that I carry with me. And using those iOS 9 features, split screen and picture in picture on the iPad Pro does make more sense. But I found that there's kind of a trickle down effect to the iPad Air and that I'm doing things with the iPad Air when I'm out that I would have waited to do on my Mac. I guess it's because I've been doing them on the iPad Pro and therefore, so rather surprisingly, on my iPad Air too. But it's working well, working rather well. Do you ever find the perfect uh, cover or case? I considered something called the Zag Messenger Universal. That name's gotten quite as bad as the ones earlier. Um, but it was less of a case and more of a keyboard that turned into an integrated stand. It might suit someone, so I put it in the show notes, but um, no, it wasn't going to be for me. The gel back that I'd got was working well until the pencil arrived. And then holding the iPad in such a way that I was marking up my PDFs meant that holding at the, at the top made the case move slightly. So I decided that the best case for me was going to be something similar to the one I have on my iPad Air 2, which is like a smart cover, but with a back on it. Actually, I bought that early for my iPad Air 2 as a stopgap. Literally, the cases that I was looking for weren't out. And I thought, well, this one is, and I'll just buy that. And, you know, it only has to last a couple of weeks. And I loved it. Uh, strangely, I got a black one for a white iPad, but it, it suits it and it's been on it ever since. I love it. So I wanted something similar for the iPad Pro. I found one that I thought was identical, but when it arrived, it, it had a more rubbery feel to it. The other one's more leather-like, um, but it's perfect. It's lightweight. It's got the integrated stand. It's got the automatic power off. So it is literally just like the original smart cover, but with a back on it. I'm actually having more trouble finding a good way to transport the pencil. I'm currently using my toothbrush case. Just don't tell my dentist. The logic being the toothbrush is cheaper to replace. But not to be outdone, I have found a promised solution. Brace yourself, MacBiters. This is what every self-respecting Apple pencil will be wearing next year. The Johnny. The Johnny. Don't dwell on it. Seriously. It's a long, thin white tube into which you slide your pencil and the Johnny protects it. Uh, TMI, methinks. TMI. It's an Indiegogo project. Now, it's nowhere near reaching its target yet. Options start from only $25. And if you fancy a good laugh, there is a few tongue-in-cheek moments reading the description on the Indiegogo page. But I'll put a link in. To be honest, I haven't found anything in the way of an alternative right now. 
So, toothbrush case it is then. Now, hardware. Yes. iPad. All started with an iPad stand. What? Like you don't have enough of those already? No, I have quite a few. But I had a specific requirement, which was I was recording screencast video uh, and or delivering webinars. If it was just a VO, it was actually much easier. But with so much kit to juggle, so you, you've got your physical kit, devices, mouse, trackpad, keyboard, microphone, then your virtual kit, which is the app that you're demoing, your recording software, streaming software, your mouse pointing, enhancing software, screen zooming utilities, you get the idea. There's a lot going on. And your iPad for your notes. So I thought it'd be a good idea to get it off the desk. Enter the premium gooseneck lazy mount, £17.79. With a name like that, you weren't even a little suspicious. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. Anyway, it promised to elevate my iPad off the desk. The flexible gooseneck clamped to the desk. The clamp was large, sturdy and worked perfectly. The gooseneck seemed to be equally strong as well. You'll notice the seamed in there. I fear this won't end well. So you could manipulate it into various positions, and I wanted it next to the iMac. So I got it in the right place. Final job, clipping the iPad in place. The mechanism was really strong. It was, it was strong enough to hold an iPad. I didn't fear it falling out. And then we were done. iPad in place. All was well. But... But to use it for notes, you need to scroll those notes. And that was when the trouble really started. Even the slightest touch sent the iPad into a spin cycle. Seriously, it took about five minutes to stop undulating alarmingly. Yes, the premium gooseneck lazy mount needed a splint or a strong dose of Viagra. So it's back to the drawing board. What about that weird looking stand you showed me? Oh, that would be the tea stand. That was another alarming looking device. It had a huge footprint, best used in a prone position. Although actually it might do you some damage if you lost control of it. Uh, it seems to be for watching Netflix in bed. It's more flexible as it can stand on a table. But to be honest, it's not the most aesthetically pleasing stand I've ever seen. It is huge. And sadly, it wouldn't get the iPad off the desk, which is what I needed. In fact, I'd probably need a bigger desk just to accommodate it. Um, if you want to be weighed down in said prone position with an iPad hovering dangerously above you, it might work for you. So I will put a link into that. I think that was also um, a Kickstarter project, but I think that did reach its um, required amount and um, is now available just for purchase. But it's rather an odd looking thing. I dare not segue into the next item from it's a rather weird looking thing. <laughs> so um, we might need to do something there. La, 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 la. Right. That's a big, big enough gap. We heard from McJim the real. Now you'll see why I didn't want to talk about alarming looking things. I think I'll hand this one over to you. Oh, the Scottish. Uh... No, don't do a Scottish accent, please. No, 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 I won't. Hey, what a new podcast, Mighty Me. That should have been X rated. Aye. Talk about what keeps them up at night. Four inches ogling a man's pencil and other such talk. Mon, I've never heard such talk. Whatever next? I'm sure he has, you know. <laughs> Whatever next, they'll be visiting that shop they were talking about a while back. Aye, and another thing. What's with this about we're on a promise? Aye, a promise. A new podcast before the year's out. Dinner give a man apoplexy. We do like to keep all the lovely MacBiters on their collective toes. Great to hear from me, Jim, and here with... A new podcast before the year's out. Shall we go double or quits on another one? Why not? Let's live dangerously. Indeed.
Well, they're closely related to whether we can or not get a new podcast out before the year's end. Progress on MacBytes headquarters. An update on our building work. You mean the disaster that was the door? Yes, the great door disaster of 2015, subtitled Nothing Good Ever Comes of Me Being in the Kitchen. But in the kitchen I was, brewing up for the brickies. Who had gone for lunch? So, patting myself on the back at the extent of their progress... I opened the back door and had a peek. Looking good. Closed the back door. That, of course, was back in the days when there was a back door to close. But that's another story. So I grabbed the kettle, took it to the sink to refill it. Managed to turn the tap on when it hit me. That roadrunner moment. You know the one in the cartoon where his legs are still going and he's hovering in mid-air, hanging off a cliff? I know the one. Only falls when he realises he's run off the cliff edge. That was me. I froze, kettle poised, stared out the window, dropped the kettle and flung the back door open again to stare at the opening, soon to be housing the new back door. The opening was in the wrong place. I don't actually know, you know, why I felt the need to reopen the door. I knew from the first foray out there it wasn't right. But you know how you are. Maybe if I look again, it'll be right. So I grabbed a tape measure, FaceTimed you, broke out into a cold sweat. It was out by at least 18 to 20 inches, which was when the brickies returned from lunch. Yeah, and I'd have paid good money to witness what happened next. I'd have paid good money to be as far away from here as you were. It wasn't pretty. Let's just say by the end of the day, the door was where it should have been at the start of it. That was when the rain started. Monsoon season. Yeah, at least the skip finally left, though. I'd got quite attached to it by the time it went. It stopped folks parking outside. Although there was a minibus got stuck behind it on Thursday, that caused a bit of a traffic jam. Took 30 minutes to clear it. I just kept gazing out of the window, repeating to myself, not my problem, not my problem. Ah, So that just leaves the walls to be finished, the windows to be installed, and the slight matter of the roof. We're on it, don't you think? We are. It'll be done by Christmas. Again, I'm not promising which one. But that's it for this episode of MacBytes, and as always, we would love to hear from you. Please send us your questions, comments and queries by email to macbytesuk at gmail.com. And if you're feeling generous, how about leaving us a review on iTunes? That would be a lovely Christmas present for us. You can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash macbytes. You can follow me personally on Twitter at twitter.com slash Elaine Giles. You can follow me at twitter.com slash Thomas Mike. And you can follow me at twitter.com slash macbytesiri. So until next time, this has been Elaine and Mike bringing you Map Bites. Goodbye. Goodbye and see you next time. What on earth are you doing? Getting rid of the rainwater that flooded the new extension. What for? She'll go mad when she sees it. Leave it to me. That's very good of you. <laughs>